How can we unlock the wealth of indigenous nations? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Terry Anderson. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Terry Anderson. Terry has been a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution since 1998 and is currently the John and Jean Deneau Senior Fellow. He is the past president of the Property and Environment Research Center in Bozeman, Montana, and a professor emeritus at Montana State University. Among other areas of expertise, the idea of using markets and property rights to solve environmental problems is not unfamiliar to Terry as one of the founders of free market environmentalism, and in 2015 he published the third edition of his co-authored book by that title. Speaking of books, he is the author and editor of 39 books, including recently editor of Unlocking the Wealth of Indian Nations, which explores the institutional underpinnings of American Indian reservation economies. It will serve as the basis of our conversation today. In addition to publishing in professional journals, Terry speaks around the world and is often featured in the popular press, including frequent editorials in the Wall Street Journal. And he's also one of the founders of the Alliance for Renewing Indigenous Economies, which is a joint project of the Tulo Center of Indigenous Economics in Kamloops, British Columbia, the Naitahu Research Center at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand, and the Hoover Institution. You can find out more about the Alliance at indigenousecon.org. Terry, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you, Alex. So, Terry, in each episode, we start with a question and just go wherever the conversation takes us. Our question today is, how can we unlock the wealth of Indigenous nations? But before we get right to the present and the future, I'd like to start a bit with the past and some history for context. So I'd like to ask you, before we start talking about the reservation system, you know, before we talk about how the U.S. government got so involved with the affairs of Indigenous and Natives peoples, I want to talk about the portrayal of often native and indigenous peoples. So in media and in certain historical takes, and even some politicians throughout history, they've often portrayed native and indigenous peoples as quote unquote primitive, meaning that they think, and this is a quote from your book at the end, which you say, of course, is not true and not the right perception, that these peoples are historically poor, illiterate, non-industrial, and non-commercial. But of course, even before we begin to understand, again, how we unlock the wealth of these indigenous peoples, we have to understand that as a people, this is historically not true. They were not indeed poor, illiterate, non-industrial, non-commercial, were they? None of those terms apply to the history of native people as I've studied it in the United States, in Canada, uh, New Zealand, a bit in Australia. And, and as we team up with other people through the alliance to examine other parts of the world, uh, the, the same holes. These are these terms do not apply. Let me just start by saying that uh, that not only did they just survive, they thrived. Uh, and when we use the term primitive, it is much more uh, suggestive that they were they were out there just barely on the on the level of subsistence, uh, and you know could expire at any time. At their populations in, in North America were, were burgeoning. If you look at the Plains Indians in Canada and the U.S. where they had buffalo, uh, they were very big people. To, to this day, uh, when I visit the Crow Reservation here in Montana and, and speak to friends there, I, I, they tower over me. They are big, strong people. 
And, and that's not just genetics. That's a, a history of, of sustenance that, that uh, gave them the ability to be big and strong people. So uh, they were, you know, primitive. It's just, it's, it's a horrible term to apply to people who were, uh, who were thriving uh, and, and who were very innovative, who, who adjusted to the, the environment in which they lived, to the uh, interaction with other cultures, their other native cultures and ultimately European cultures. So uh, primitive just seems to me to be a, a a total misnomer. And it's interesting too, as I was reading the book and a lot of your articles on this, that you know some people might say to us in this conversation, well, yes, some people at the time may have had that understanding, but of course, you know, nobody will say something rude like, you know, just dismiss them as primitive now because we understand better. But it, but it's interesting to note that, of course, there was a lot of racism, a lot of different attitudes towards uh, indigenous and native people at the time. There still is now, and there definitely was a lot more back then. But even back then, there were still some people that noticed that this sort of idea of them being primitive or just living on subsistence or lifestyles was wrong, as or, or that they weren't, you know, innovative and they weren't thriving. For instance, I, I like that little uh, part that you put in the book. I think it was towards the beginning uh, where um, it even was noted that Lewis and Clark told President Jefferson that the indigenous peoples were, quote, an independent business-like lot, sharp entrepreneurs and shrewd dealers. So even people that had earlier interactions with, with these peoples and these tribes understood that what they obser- were observing was, as you said, not just a bunch of people you know, pounding away at, at, at whatever they were building or whatever they were hunting. The, these people had definitely systems of living and institutions that helped them thrive. Uh, I'm going to pick up on the Lewis and Clark uh, quote and, and what they observed. Uh, it's one of my favorite stories from the Lewis and Clark journals. Uh, and it re- relates to commerce and trade and, and their business-like nature. When Lewis and Clark spent the first winter in, uh, and the Corps of Discovery spent the first winter in North Dakota in the Mandan villages, uh, their blacksmith made trade axes. These were metal axe heads with the Corps of Discovery's uh, logo. And they traded these for blankets, for horses, for food. Uh, and uh, then uh, after the winter, they spent the next, they launched the next spring heading up the Missouri, uh, you know, an arduous task to be sure, uh, finally get to the mountains. Sacagawea helps them find the path across the mountains to the, to the west coast or to the, to the western drainage. As they come down the west side of the mountains, they encounter the Nez Pierce and the Nez Pierce villages and they find one of their trade axes is already there. In other words, that trade network was so extensive that a trade axe built in North Dakota, it traded enough times to find its way across uh, North America to the, to the Western Slope faster than Lewis and Clark could. And I think that speaks to the trade networks. And, it, and, and back to the Mandan villages where this started, this was a, a trading node that was that was remarkable, and and there's there's now great uh, archaeological and anthropological data showing that that these trade nodes had you know shells from the west coast, uh, pipestone from Minnesota, uh, uh, obsidian from Yellowstone Park, uh, furs from northern Canada. So you know these were vibrant, vibrant trade networks. And I, I want to in, interject something I probably should have said a little earlier about just my naivete when it comes to the primitive nature 
uh, uh, suggestion that that was a uh, a way that a descriptive term for for uh, indigenous people. I, I I was doing some reading and I started to think, well, how could it be that Europe had these you know these cities and and castles and churches, uh, and yet the Native Americans uh, were didn't have these these uh, large uh, towns large uh, empires. And so I wrote to my friend, Matt Ridley, uh, and another, another friend, Charles Mann, both of whom uh, have done some studying in, in, in these areas. And, and I said, how can this be? And both of them wrote back to me immediately and said, you need to open your eyes, Terry, take a look at, at, uh, at the, the Lakota empire uh, that that expanded in in the on the plains in the in the 17th and 18th centuries. And this was an intricate empire that was was woven together by kinship. It was woven together by by rules and constitutions, some mostly unwritten, but but clearly they were they they had uh, done what the Europeans had done, though in a very different kind of way. And if you if you look at Chaco Canyon in in the southern southwestern United States, this was a huge area with with large buildings and and again a, a massive trade took place through those uh, through through Chaco Canyon. So uh, you know again these 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 are just the kinds of things that I think uh, people like myself uh, learned in grammar school <laughs> now are having to unlearn, and I think it's permeated uh, indigenous cultures in a way that's very detrimental because it, it too often indigenous people take this as given that they were primitive when in fact uh, they should be proud of that heritage that was far from primitive that that made them thrive as i said earlier so i guess to sum that point up and, and of course don't don't want to put words in your mouth so definitely correct me if i'm taking the wrong sort of you know, putting the wrong sort of bow around that. But basically, it's, it sounds to me that what you're saying is that although uh, a lot of the things like the way property and the way certain legal institutions were created, or at least done in places like the West, like Europe, Britain, France, what have you, although they were done a certain way in, in these countries and understood a certain way there, just because it wasn't done the same way by by native and indigenous peoples does not mean that they had no understanding of property or institutions, or as you said, rules and regulations, laws, and or the rules of the game. They just went about it differently, although the principles still applied. Yes, I, I think your point is, is, is spot on. And when we think of property, we think of it, we Westerners uh, uh, in, in a modern context, think of it in the context of real property. And right. So that immediately leads to the notion of land. Well, if you're if you're looking at at a culture at, at societies in Europe where land was scarce, uh, and where agriculture was was uh, incredibly important to to their thriving, uh, property rights to land were important and they defined them well. But if you look at take the Lakota Empire, where you're you're out on the plains hunting buffalo uh, from horseback. The notion of owning a hectare of land is meaningless. <laughs> you have no reason to own a hectare of land. And I think that from that, we infer that they didn't understand property. That said, you don't have to look very deeply into 
indigenous histories uh, again around the world really but my expertise if i have one is is in north america if you look at 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 even ownership of land take the southwest i mentioned chaco canyon the land rights were very clear the the uh, parcels were demarcated with stones that had uh, either painted or carved into them the the crow clan the rabbit clan and uh and it was it was it, that property belonged to yes a clan it wasn't necessarily stamped with alex or terry uh but it it was clearly something that 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 people managed carefully they reaped the the value of 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 their productivity and uh again clearly understood property one final example from the pacific northwest uh, on the border with canada and the united states clam gardens uh, the the beaches where where native americans and and first nations harvested clams were for all intents and purposes privately owned they cultivated those beaches by moving boulders boulders that you know we can't imagine how they moved without a a, a tractor uh, and they brought in sand and gravel and, and and made these beaches much more productive for clam production the result was they they feasted off of clams uh, they traded that for salmon and and the list goes on uh, that was probably you know th this this notion that somehow they lived in harmony with nature in a in a collective society it, it just just missed is the whole point of the institutions that 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 indigenous people uh, built up uh, on their own from the ground uh, and without the help of, of the Europeans. Right. So, so we've discussed that they had property rights. They defined property rights. There was even different ways that they enforced property rights. Earlier, we even talked about trade and exchange. And you and you before we move on to how some of the problems were created and how some of this 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 wealth and, and this. This, this way that they thrived was locked down. I want to just one more quick stop at the word institutions. And I always on the podcast want to make sure that we never take wor words for granted here, because al although sometimes we, we like to use these words on a day in day out basis, especially when we talk about different kinds of analysis and things like that. I want to make sure we define our our, uh, our words and as well get into what they mean to someone like you as well who analyzes this stuff. Your book and a lot of your work always comes back to this words institutions and, and doesn't and doesn't speed past it. You refer to them as as the rules of the game, formal and, and informal. And in the book, you even talk about a way to understand uh, how we can unlock the wealth of indigenous and natives people through through a framework of something called new institutional economics. So first, can we talk a bit about what you mean by institutions and and the mentality that people should get into when they're starting to look at the problems that indigenous and natives peoples face. And, and, and second, you could also, of course, describe new institutional economics if you'd like. But I really want to make sure we, we get this point across. I think it's so very important not to, to brush right past it. Economists uh, have many, many terms that we use that, that muddy the waters rather than clarify them. And institutions is one of them. To the average person on the street, you say, what's an institution and they say a bank right uh, or they they say some club that they know of uh, and that's not what economists mean that's not what the new institutional economics is about uh, and yet it permeates the literature so so I'm stuck with it because I'm an economist I suppose I studied at the University of Washington under Douglas North who won the Nobel Prize for his work on new institutional economics and and doug is really the one who taught me to think about institutions being 
the rules of the game. And that's very different from obviously from a bank or a club or 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 some other organization that we we typically think of as an institution. Thought of as rules of the game, then it's it's the thought of as rules of the game, institutions are are the ways in which people interact with one another. If people if a person lives totally as a hermit in the woods and in harmony with nature, if you will, uh, that person doesn't need institutions because there's no interaction with other people. As soon as there are two people or three or, or different nations, then those nations can only, those people and individuals and nations can only live uh, together in, in, in a, a productive way if they have rules that define who does what, who gets what, who owns what, uh, and, and what are the collective rules for coming together, both within a given society and across societies. So thought of as the rules of the game, then institutions, I think, are, are much more clearly uh, thought of as uh, the, the glue that, that keeps societies peaceful and productive. Without those rules, without without rules of the game, then we we live in a state of anarchy, and uh, clearly, indigenous people did not live in a state of anarchy. That isn't to say they didn't fight over borders. It isn't to say that they didn't fight over property. Uh, but but you can't thrive, as I used the term earlier, without having rules that allow people to interact in peaceful productive ways. And we've already discussed a little bit before how they did have various different kinds of institutions, especially in, in the way you described. Before we head into our break, we have a, a couple minutes left here that I want to end off this part of the conversation by now talking about the the problems that were caused and, and things that sort of started stepping on uh, Indigenous and Native people's institutions. So I, I want to enter the discussion about American uh, re- re- reservation system. And can, can you explain what happened to bring in the reservation system and, and all the government meddling? In, in a lot of your work, you talk about that this this bottom-up order and this set of institutions that the Indigenous and Native peoples enjoyed was replaced by U.S. government and top-down systems that not only crushed and caused trouble and basically started stamping on Indigenous and Native institutions, but also started benefiting special interest groups like politicians and, and business people, etc. Of course, we could probably do hours and hours on this topic, but at a high level, I was wondering if you just take us take us through that for a few minutes of, of how this started happening and what kinds of things the U.S. government started implementing that stamped out these institutions and interfered with the, the way of life for Native people and Indigenous peoples. One of my... Uh... One of the one of the publications for which I'm uh, most proud is a publication entitled "Raid or Trade: The Economics of Indian White Relations." It was written with the late Fred McChesney, and uh, Fred really is the one who keyed me into this notion of raid or trade by t- by pointing out to me that the Indian Wars, which came in the in the really the last half of the 19th century were not the norm, not the way that, that Europeans and indigenous, but most of the history up until uh, the middle of the 19th century. What we then documented was that there was extensive trading, not just of trade axes or, or horses, but trading of territories where the Europeans, the 
coming ashore, uh, wanting to have a place to to live, uh, exchanged with the indigenous people uh, various goods in return for uh, basically land or or rights to settle on land with indigenous people, uh, and that that was the norm, as I said, up until the 19th century. The big change that Fred and I identified uh, may come as a surprise to many listeners, but it was the Civil War in the United States. Why was that a big change? Well, the Civil War and slightly before that, the Mexican-American War was was the first time that the United States had a standing army. Prior to that, if you wanted to fight Indians to take, to raid rather than trade, You had to get the local militia together, and that meant you, your brother, your uncle, maybe your daughter, uh, and go out and fight. And fighting is costly. Think of it in terms of our interaction today. The last thing people want to do in their their relations today is end up in court. That's a zero-sum game. It's a a game in which both, both parties expend a lot of effort and wealth and all that happens is you divide the spoils. And so prior to the Civil War and prior to the Standing Army, it was costly to, to raid. Once we got the Standing Army in the United States, then that became the political uh, equivalent of, of, of uh, paying for the lawyer in court. And so the Standing Army allowed the politicians to use the Standing Army to take to raid rather than trade. Uh, I, I point out that in many of my writings and, and uh, always in when I'm speaking, that uh, Mr. Custer, who didn't do very well at the Battle of the Little Bighorn, uh, was, was a lieutenant colonel unless he was fighting Indians, at which point he got the brevet rank of general. So General George Armstrong Custer only was a general if he was fighting. And that gave the army a big incentive to engage in fighting too. The generals got paid more. They had more authority. And so it was the rise of the standing army that led to the Indian Wars. It led to eventually to uh, the the government of the United States taking over the territories by raiding and eventually to telling the Indians, you're going to live our rules under our institutions and we will tell you what they are. And that is basically the reservation system here south of the border and uh, the system that's not that much different in in Canada uh, of, of uh, for First Nations. And can we talk a little bit about the, the reservation system a little more? This is ultimately, we talked about property rights and we'll probably come back to that, but there's also a, a sort of a sovereignty issue here, right? The, the indigenous peoples are technically supposed to be sovereign, right? This is, people might think on the surface, oh, this is their land, they can do what they want. But as you explain in a lot of your writings, and there was even a Supreme Court um, ruling on this, which had an opinion, uh, I think the Cherokee Nation versus Georgia Supreme Court case, where someone said, "Yeah, technically they're they're you know doing their own thing on their land, they're sovereign in, in a certain sense, but this is more like a ward to the to their guardian sort of relationship." Can you so can you sort of get into that and the implication for institutions in that way? Once the government had the power through the standing army to force indigenous people to live in certain areas and to takes that that people thought were theirs again not in a strict you know rectangularly surveyed uh 
system that, that we think of in a European context, but, but rather territories that they thought were theirs. Once the government had that authority, they could push, push the Indians wherever they wanted. And they, they did so after defeating them militarily by saying, now we'll form a treaty. And this treaty will say, you get the land from this river over to that mountain range up to here and so on. And in return, you stay there, stop uh, raiding the, the settlers who are coming to this territory. You stay on your piece of land and we will reserve it, hence reservation, for you. Uh, and, and out of that then came these, these territories that, that were drawn on maps. I have a map on my wall of, of the original uh, Indian uh, reservations in Montana. And these were huge parcels of land, uh, and and but they were parcels that were. I was going to say they were parcels that were doled out by the federal government. They weren't doled out. These were just sections of land that the Indians had as their particular territories, and and had lines drawn around them. And said, "You stay there, leave the the Europeans alone, and uh, we'll live peacefully with one another." Of course. As soon as those reservation boundaries were drawn and the settlers said, well, gee, did we really need to give them that fertile river valley? Uh, those reservations got carved up very quickly into smaller and smaller pieces. And you can, you can look at, at uh, time series maps of, of reservations and they just they start large and they get whittled down as the federal government said, well, we didn't mean to give you the Black Hills in South Dakota because they have gold. Or we didn't mean to give you the large coal deposits in Montana because the railroad wants them. So we carved those reservations down in, into smaller and smaller, smaller and smaller parcels. But at no time in this process were Native Americans, uh, in particular, allowed to uh, to have to, to live as a sovereign nation within that boundary, within those boundaries. And at no time did, as sovereign nations, were they able to establish their own rules of the game. Uh, take take uh, uh, institutions like uh, this. Uh, I'm going to come back and use rules of the game because this institution uh, that I'm going to describe was how the rules were formed. Many tribes used a, a, a ceremony called the Sundance. And the Sundance was not just a way to for young people Prove that they they were now mature. It was a way to inculcate in people the rules that governed the society, uh, or the potlatch on the Pacific Northwest, uh, both sides of the Canadian and U.S. border. Uh, this was a, a system that that helped establish uh, how people interacted. Back to the rules of the game. These institutions, these these potlatches, these sun dances, and other such ceremonies were outlawed on reservations. That is taking from tribes their sovereignty. If they can't establish their own institutions, they have no sovereignty. And it was it was codified in in the, the ruling from the, the Supreme Court you just mentioned by saying the relationship is that of a ward to his guardian. And so the federal government treated Indians to this day, Native Americans and and uh, First Nations in Canada are treated as wards of the state. And to imagine that we live in a country in this day and age with laws that specifically refer to this group of people as wards of the state is just unimaginable, unconscionable. Uh, to use the term of the day, 
it is about as racist a, a, a word and as racist a rule that that exists on either side of the of the U.S. Canadian borders. And so today, then, what we have are are our First Nations living on their reserves, tribes in the U.S. living on their reservations, but neither place are are the tribes or First Nations really allowed to formulate the 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 rules that are part of this history that we've been talking about so much. And without that, there cannot be sovereignty. And though here in the U.S. tribes say we're a sovereign nation. Uh, they really aren't. They don't have power. They don't have, for example, they don't have the power to tax. If you don't have the power to tax, you have no way to 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 take collective action, uh, which means creating rules, which means building infrastructure, and the list goes on. Uh, that's a part of of indigenous histories that hasn't been studied as thoroughly as it should. And and actually, at the Hoover Institution uh, in November, we will be hopefully hosting a a conference with scholars, uh, mostly Native American scholars, studying how sovereignty depends upon uh, the ability of of a group of people to formulate their own institutions. And I think that's actually an excellent place to take a break. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Terry Anderson. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curiousTask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Sabine Elchidiak, Travis Smith, and Vincent Geloso. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Terry Anderson today. So, Terry, before the break, we gave ourselves a bit of historical context. You took us through a, a lot of discussions about the history of the Native and Indigenous peoples, how they did indeed have institutions. And we also talked a bit about the, the reservation system and, and how the American government's actions in, interfered with a lot of American Native peoples' institutions and, and ways of life. In this sort of second half here, I want to talk a bit more about solutions and how we can start to you know, steal from your book title and your work, start unlocking the wealth of these indigenous peoples and, and their nations. So we talked about property. So I want to, as sort of a, the way problems were started, but I want to talk about property in the sense now how the, it can be used as a solution. So can we now get into, again, why property rights are so important to our discussion today on unlocking the wealth of indigenous nations? Um, and specifically, um, I picking up on a note in some of your writing that I saw where you're talking about one thing that needs to happen is strong jurisdictional differentiation uh, on the reservations and also between them and, and things like that. So can you take us through that and how can property and the way that's handled right now be changed to start helping indigenous and native peoples get, get back to this bottom up driven uh, thriving that they we've, we've talking that they used to do that they deserve to have back. If, if we were, if, if we had video in addition to audio, I would now pop up some pictures I took uh, about a month ago on the Crow Reservation and the Northern Cheyenne, Cheyenne Reservations here in Montana. Uh, while driving through there, and I'd, I'd seen this before, and just it seemed so 
starkly vivid when when I went through uh, in April. Uh, while driving through those reservations, I stopped and and took pictures uh, standing on the borderline between two parcels of land. And one side, you would see a cultivated field, sprouting new crops. Uh, in the background, you would see a home, a barn, perhaps some equipment. Uh, obviously, productive land. On the other side of that that fence line, you would see uh, a, a weed patch. You might see three horses and five cows, and 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 I I, I use this from from a, a good friend who's who's a crow uh, tribal member. <clears throat> it, it, you would see uh, wrecked cars and a hovel to live in, and 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 my friend will say, if you don't have that, you're almost not Indian. Uh, and and you look at this standing on this border and you say, what could be the difference? And the answer is quite simply property rights. On one side, you will find, and and I have an app on my phone, I can look it up and it will say, this is the property of, and it'll have the person's name and a description of of, uh, the land and uh, and the the, uh, address. On the other side, it will say Crow tribal property held in trust by the federal government. And that's the key to, I think, unlocking the wealth of Indian nations. The trusteeship, in the case of the federal government in the United States and in Canada, is, is a, 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 goes back to this ward to his guardian notion. All tribal land and a huge amount of individually held land for Native Americans is in trust. That means that the federal government, the Bureau of Indian Affairs in our case, as trustee of the of that land, must be consulted before anything can be done. You can't if and and some of this land is held by the tribe as a as an organization, but in the in the late 19th century much of it was allocated to individual heads of household who were going to become good jeffersonian yeoman farmers as a result of owning a piece of land but it had to be held in trust for a certain period of time and that period was 25 years unless unless the bureau of indian affairs agent deemed and again i I, these words come right straight out of, of, of federal law, federal Indian law, and, and they're there today. Unless the government deemed the individual Indian to be, be capable and confident, capable and competent, the federal government determines that. Well, and as a result, many of these parcels never never were released from trusteeship, and today, due to a law passed in 1934, uh, cannot be released from trust. And once you impose this, this control from the federal government on these pieces of land, they will be weed patches. They will not be cultivated. They can't be taken to the bank as collateral to get a loan to put in a sprinkler irrigation system or to buy a tractor that will allow cultivation. And the one across the fence on the other side is is held by an individual, a corporation, a, a family, 
and it it is truly private property that creates the the bulwark of production in agriculture without with trusteeship there is no way that native americans and first nations will ever be able to return to the prosperity that they have had in the history that we've talked about. And I just want to clarify one thing to make sure I'm not getting confused or the listeners don't. So there there are, of course, reservations. And you're saying some reservations actually have private property on them or in them, and other reservations have property that's locked up in this trust. But we're still talking about the reservations themselves, correct? Yes. If, if you look at a map of, of, of any reservation or any reserve in Canada, you'll find that it's a mosaic of, of land tenure. And it consists of two basic categories. Well, I'll say three categories. It consists of, of private property, that which we just talked about. It consists of tribal property held in trust and individual Indian property held in trust. So you have these three categories. And uh, it, is, it is those categories that, that uh, represent, that, that create this mosaic and represent the constraints on what can be done with that property. So yeah, it, it, all, all the reserves and reservations have some sake, although uh, take for example, the, the uh, uh, in, in Southern Colorado, all of the land of that reservation is tribal trust land. It's owned by the tribe, it's held in trust. And I can tell you, I've driven through it. <laughs> it is not very productive. And yet right next door is the Southern Ute. And I mean right next door, these two reservations border one another. The Southern Ute has a large amount of private fee simple land and it's very productive. And I suppose even like as a simple business example that comes to mind to me like immediately is, is imagine if you are someone that, like an individual who owns this private property on the reservation and you have a business, whatever it is, a type of farming whatever the case may be, and you want to expand that that business and you think, well, I need more land. Wouldn't it be great to purchase another acre or whatever the case may be to us, to people not living on the reservation or understanding that that sort of life in those circumstances? You and I might think, oh, well, we're, if you and I are entrepreneurs or business partners, Terry, we might just go buy some more property or we might just, you know, the world's our oyster in that way. But I guess here's a situation where someone might find themselves in some way or another literally you know, both financially and physically landlocked in, in this type of situation. So that's very interesting. I don't want to overstate the point, but I think it's very important to sort of understand that land issue deeply to, again, as you said, find that key to unlock the wealth that, that could be right under right under their fingertips. I don't think you can overstate the point you just made uh, and, and just state it again. If you can't take the title to that land to the bank, you cannot leverage the land to to create productivity, and and furthermore, if the neighboring land can't be brought into productivity because it's held in trust, then there's no way to to expand the amount of productive land within a reservation. Quickly, I'll just uh, tell the listeners how I first came across this. Uh, I'd never even realized these these uh, uh, rules that existed on reservations until visiting a reservation here in Montana, visiting a, 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 a tribal member uh, and driving up to his house, expecting it to be the side of the fence I described with the weed patch and horses. To the contrary, it was the, it was the, what, what I described on the other side of productive uh, pasture, cows and grass up to their belly, et cetera. 
I said to this person, how do you explain this? And he looked at me and said, I own this place. And I said, well, I thought we were on the reservation. He said, we are. I own this place. <laughs> after three times, I finally got what he meant. I said, you mean like I own my house? And he said, of course. And it was just this epiphany for me as to what was going on uh, on these two sides of the fence I described earlier. As, as we said, we cannot really overstate the point, especially when it comes to uh, resources that are locked up in indigenous territories and, and reservations. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that first and invested interests and regulations second. But one quote that stuck out to me in, in, your, in the book was that uh, tribal resources nationwide are potentially worth $1.5 trillion dollars. And I believe that was worldwide. I, I actually didn't do that last part of the notes. I apologize if I got that wrong. But that's still a lot <laughs> of uh, <laughs> worth caught up in this mosaic and this landlocking. And this, as you said, it, it can't be overstated. And uh, of course, one of the main problems before we talk about sort of private interests that might get involved here, I want to talk about public interests, i.e. the government. I mean, when you have an alphabet suit of government agencies involved with the not only on the one hand managing indigenous territory, but on the other hand, um, managing resources specifically and coming from that angle, th this just becomes very messy, right? I mean, we have one agency that wants to talk about how resources could or should be used, or perhaps there's different environmental regulation. On the other hand, you have th this this ward to guardian dynamic, terrible dynamic that's happening. So there's a lot of things compressing and pushing down, as we said before, the potential thrive thriving that, that these people could be doing with their land, especially with $1.5 trillion worth of resources uh, it locked in here. Like that, that's, that was crazy to me when I read that. A few years ago, I, I did some calculations of, of, of the coal reserves on the uh, Crow Reservation. They, have, they are the largest, the, the Crow tribe is the largest holder of coal reserves in the United States. I, I used holder as opposed to owner because, right. again, this trusteeship. I calculated that on average at the time I did this about 10 or 15 years ago, that that meant the average tribal member had over $3 million in wealth in coal. But again, not owned, not wealth like you might have in stocks and bonds, but right. just the average value of that coal. At the time, the rate of return to tribal members was 0.001%. So they just they can't possibly capitalize on these trillions, in their case, billions of dollars worth of resources. And then it's complicated even more, as you said, by the alphabet soup. And, and this is just the classic example of, of bureaucracies not going away. So we start in the United States with the Department of the Army, which has now defeated Indians uh, as the manager of these reservations or of the people on them. Eventually, the Department of Interior and the Bureau of Indian Affairs takes over all of this. And then, as it is today, uh, then there's there's the, the, the Housing and Urban Development uh, Department that, that's involved because there are housing issues. Uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs has the Indian Health Service. And so now we have another branch of the federal government in this bureaucracy controlling health and education and police. And, and the list just goes on and on. And each one of these is a bureaucracy in itself that isn't going to go away. And what it means is these bureaucracies have control 
of the lives of the individual sovereignty and of tribal sovereignty. And as long as that's the case, uh, Indians will not thrive. They will at best survive. Right. And I want to shift gears a bit to talking about things like constitutional reform. And I, I love talking about the property issue, but I have to move us away from that. But before we leave it real quick, I just want to say, I don't want this to sound too flippant, but, and obviously it's a little more nuanced than I'm about to say, but in terms of the solutions focus we're having in this half hour chat, I guess the, the, the solution to, to the problems we just discussed is basically, well, we'll get rid of that. That needs to change, right? You can't have this alphabet soup of managers and, and no opportunity for people to privately own their land. We need to put pri- private property ownership back in the hands of, of the people it belongs with, essentially, I guess, is what we're getting at. Absolutely correct. Uh, and and I'm, I'm so careful, especially as, as a uh, a white uh, person of European descendants long ago, but uh, I am the last one to come in and say, let me tell you how to fix your problems. Right. Uh, I wouldn't say to, to my neighbors. <laughs> I wouldn't say that for sure to Native Americans. So it'll, it has to be something that, that the indigenous people on their own say, this is what we want. And 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 then they have to build their own rules of the game, institutions. They have to have to take control of their sovereignty. The problem, of course, is uh, uh, wresting that control, that sovereignty, back from the federal governments that hold it. Uh, and and this is, you know, again, it's certainly not easy. And it has to start with people wanting to be sovereign. Want, I feel I'm a sovereign individual. I want to be. I'm a free person. I can do what I want within the limits of the collective that I, I live with. Uh, my family, for starters. Uh, and, and, and if I don't want that sovereignty, if I want to be a ward, well, then I'm going to have to accept what comes with it. If, if my, my collective group wants to be a ward, then I can't, we can't be sovereign. And so it requires then that, that individuals and, and ultimately the collective of individuals, the tribes, the First Nations, uh, demand that they have sovereignty. It's slowly happening uh, more in Canada than the U.S., and that's thanks to the Tulo Center and Manny Jules and Andre Ledresse there, who've been pushing for, for legislation in Canada. And I only wish we had uh, such leaders here. We're starting to develop them, but uh, leaders who are are saying, well, at least let each tribe decide what it wants. Let the tribe decide whether it wants to have private property, whether it wants to have powers of taxation. And, you know, as 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 a scholar, I say, if if your group wants to live as wards of the state, uh, so be it. But if my group wants to to be sovereign, uh, then that's then I should have that. That's that's happening too slowly, I think. But again, it has to start with people wanting to have sovereignty, and that's a hard thing to to want if you if you kind of back to earlier discussion. If you've been uh, nurtured on the notion that that you uh, you were this primitive society, and if you haven't had any uh, ability for generations. To exercise sovereignty, it's hard to then say, I want it, and then what will I do with it? And I think that actually connects nicely to one of the, the, la- 
the final points I did want to talk about today, which is, and we sort of overlapped into it already, this idea of constitutional reform. And I guess ultimately what, what you're saying, and we can continue what you were just saying, is that, and you say it, said it in your writings as well before, that this needs to happen from the bottom up, right? No no American or Canadian or whatever country we're talking about with Indigenous peoples, no government could come in and say, fine, you guys want a constitution? Here's a good one. This needs to, as you say, happen from the bottom up, different tribes, different territories. They need to decide if they want a written constitution, if if uh, if it sh- if it should have certain powers of taxation in it, how should the constitution look? Uh, how, how the rule of law looks like specifically in their areas? Nevertheless, you do say on the one hand constitutional reform is needed, but on the other hand, for instance, you and I can't sit here and say exactly what is needed in that constitution. We we tried the latter approach in 1934 in the United States under the Indian Reorganization Act, the act that locked the land into trusteeship. And the Bureau of Indian Affairs went around to tribes and said, said, well, if you're going to be a recognized civilized tribe, you need to have a constitution. They basically handed them a copy of the U.S. Constitution. We the people, and uh, on it goes. <laughs> and uh, it, it, those constitutions, many tribes adopted, said, okay, well, we'll take that one. But they didn't know what they meant. They didn't uh, jive at all with their traditions. And, and hence, they are meaningless. Uh, so a few tribes use their own uh, traditions to create some rules, and they tend to be the ones that are more successful. And sometimes those rules are based on things that I mentioned earlier, such as the Sundance. A good friend, Sheldon Spotted Elk of the Northern Cheyenne tribe, uh, has, has a, a wonderful uh, scholarly article entitled, the Sundance as the Cheyenne Constitution. <laughs> and, and so th- there is a history there, and, it, and that's where uh, constitutional reform uh, will ultimately uh, sprout from. I, I would say that, that it's, there, there's sort of another movement that's it's a slower one, it's a smaller one, uh, but it, it, it's opening doors for tribes to realize what it means to be sovereign. And, and uh, here in the U.S. especially, uh, people think that this is the goose that will lay golden eggs for tribes, namely gaming, uh, casinos. Uh, that, the, the casinos are, are, are not going to be laying golden eggs forever and ever. Uh, and that's another story. But what they have done, what the Indian Gaming Act did, was allowed tribes to compact with the states to 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 form an agreement that allows tribes to have gaming on their reservations subject to some state rules. I look at that as a way of tribes gaining just a little tiny foothold of sovereignty. And that process is is becoming better seen by, by Native Americans themselves as a way to step by step, tiny steps perhaps, to gain sovereignty over more and more of their lives. And I, I, I think it'll be that kind of a process that ultimately uh, uh, renews the wealth of Indian nations rather than some top-down, here's a constitution, adopt it, and now you'll live happily ever after. Right. And you do mention in a lot of your writing that, of course, casinos and gaming are, of course, legitimate examples of 
um, where we see bit, bits and pieces of entrepreneurism and, and industry starting to flourish on certain territories. Unfortunately, it's it's become actually a bit of a stereotype for Indigenous peoples as well. So people tend to just think of that in, in their head when they think of uh, when you have Indigenous and Native people plus business. That's unfortunately one of the stereotypes that comes to people's mind immediately. But one thing I like about your writing is you also highlight that there's a lot of other unsung success stories as well. Like there's success stories in timber and, and minerals and, and agriculture and tourism. Of course, there's there's problems that come along with all these, like any business, no matter who's running them. But the fact is, these do exist in the background as well. What I got from your writing is that there are bits and pieces of success stories in, in, in different areas of the United States and the world that show us that uh, given the opportunity, industries like, as I said, timber, minerals, agricultural tourism, whatever the case may be, can flourish uh, with Indigenous and Native peoples running it uh, if they're just given the chance to do so. My best example of what you just described is the Cushada tribe in in Louisiana. It was not even a recognized tribe until 1974. That is, the federal government didn't call it a tribe. And as uh, my good friend Ernest Zicke, who was chairman of the, of the tribe at the time, uh, when they got uh, recognition by the federal government, says, the federal government recognized us and then we were Indians. <laughs> It's, it's humorous when 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 uh, Ernest uh, describes it in that, but it's 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 pitiful too. But once they were once they were recognized as a tribe, they could get a gaming compact with the state of Louisiana. They built a a wonderful uh, resort facility and and uh, a, a large casino halfway between New Orleans and Houston. And they began making money. But Ernest and, and the other members of the tribe, and now his son is the chairman of the tribe, recognized right away that this was just one step forward in gaining more sovereignty. They began buying land. They began buying oil wells. They have crawfish farms. They have soybean farms. They are now the third largest private employer in Louisiana. The third largest. And they've done it one step at a time building their own business models. Uh, yes, it started with gaming, but they recognize that that is not, again, the goose that will lay golden eggs. The goose that will lay golden eggs are the institutions that they've established that make them the third largest employer, that make them a wealthy tribe, even though they don't have a share of these trillions of dollars we talked about. They've purchased this land from other farmers and, and they've built it into a, a, a sovereign tribe that, that clearly understands the importance of property rights, the importance of, of rules governing the collective, and the importance of interacting with the people around them. And my, my final comment and, and question before we head to the formal wrap-up is, I wanted to tie everything we just talked about in the last couple of minutes there with with a point that I see coming up multiple times in, in the things you've written on the subject is you refer to the the investment climate of reservations needing stabilization. And I guess ultimately that that's what we're talking about, right? Through, through rule of law, uh, different constitutions, uh, that that again this 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 bottom up order that that should be encouraged and and enforcing private property rights and and however each indigenous or native peoples wants to go about it the point is if they're enabled to do these things that is in effect stabilizing the the investment climate and the, and the markets in these areas both for ex external 
uh, investment, perhaps, if, if they want that, uh, which creates sort of a dynamic economy between the reservations and the outside and also the, in, the internal economies as well. I guess my point is one thing I grabbed through all this writing is that it's, it's about stabilizing that climate for investment in business and, and, and individualism and entrepreneurship that ultimately what, what the discussion is really about. If, if, a, 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 if a nation, whether it's a, a nation more a United States type nation, if a nation does not have property rights and a stable rule of law, there can be no investment climate. And without investment, there cannot be prosperity. Uh, and there cannot be dignity, in my opinion. And uh, that is the key to unlocking the wealth of Indian nations, establishing property rights and a rule of law that can work. And the tribes that are successful have done that. I've, I've talked I talked to Ernest Zicke about how they started their casino. And I said, how did you get investors? And he said, well, we told investors they we would pay them and we would give them a share of the profits. And we made sure that any disputes we had would be arbitrated outside of any tribal system. In other words, the last thing they wanted was some mock court uh, determining who, who was right or wrong in some dispute. That's what rule of law is about. And, and again, uh, the Cushada is just one of many nations. The Winnebago and Nebraska are another fine example of, of, of tribes that have recognized the, how crucial it is to have private property. And it may be private property owned by the tribe. In that sense, it's collective private pro- property. But it can't be property under the trusteeship of a federal government. And it must be then held... Uh, it must be managed under a, a, a rule of law that is stable and ensures that people who make investments get rewarded for them. Well, our, our time is completely wound down here. Uh, Terry, it's time for the formal wrap-up. Uh, we always want to make sure that the guest has the last word in the conversation. So let's wrap it up. We've talked about a lot. I, I want you to bring us full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question today. It's a big issue. We could probably talk for hours about it. It's a tough issue. But given the things we've covered today, what what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on how the wealth of Indigenous nations can be unlocked? If we left somebody with, with a couple of takeaways and tried to, to you know put a finer point on our conversation, what would you want to leave them with? I, I think that the title of, of the book we've been using as the uh, uh, catalyst for our discussion, Unlocking the Wealth of Indian Nations, brings too much focus on the wealth part, on the prosperity part. And, and while I think that is uh, 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 something that's been denied Indigenous people and, uh, and, and they should at least have the opportunity to prosper, uh, it's not it's not the end all that that I I hope all, all people in the world eventually can have, uh, but certainly indigenous people. And the end all is freedom and dignity. Without without sovereignty, without property rights, without a rule of law, people cannot be free, and they cannot have the dignity that all individuals have a right to, deserve and have a right to. And so the Alliance is, is designed to help Indigenous people understand what it will take to regain 
the freedom and dignity that they once had and and the freedom and dignity that will carry them into the future. Terry Anderson, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. My pleasure. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.